The third emperor of the Qing dynasty in China was a man named Xuan Ye. But he would be remembered by history by the title the Kangxi Emperor. He ruled for more than 61 years, making him the longest reigning Chinese emperor in history and one of the longest reigning rulers in the world. And during that time, he brought China into an unparalleled period of stability and prosperity and would be remembered as one of the greatest rulers ever to sit on the imperial throne. But the Kangxi Emperor owed his throne to an unlikely ally. That was the virus variola, the tiny microbe that causes the disease known as smallpox. First of all, it was smallpox that killed his father, the Shunji Emperor, a man who had ruled China for 18 years and crushed resistance to his rule in the north. In China, as in Europe, the sons and daughters of the nobility had less contact with the outside world than regular people, and so it was less likely that they would be exposed to smallpox as a child. This meant that sitting rulers often had no immunity to the virulent disease and were exceptionally vulnerable to it. In September 1660, the Shunji Emperor's favourite consort suddenly died and the emperor fell into a deep depression for months afterwards. By some reports, even burning down two of his palaces as an expression of his grief. To make matters worse, during this time he also contracted smallpox. This disease had been ravaging Chinese cities during his reign, with nine recorded outbreaks occurring in Beijing while he sat on the throne. Successive governments had been doing everything they could to lessen the spread of the disease. In 1622, an agency had been founded in Beijing to manage quarantines, an attempt to isolate sufferers. When outbreaks occurred, members of the royal family were whisked away to special smallpox avoidance centres, usually isolated palaces surrounded by hunting land, where they would be safe. But in the king's grief, it's possible he had neglected these safety precautions. It must have been the greatest fear of everyone at court that the emperor would contract the disease. And now it had come to pass. As the king's condition worsened, the mood at court must have turned bleak. And soon it became clear that the emperor was going to die. On the 4th of February 1661, he summoned his officials to his sickbed to write his final will and to name his successor. Racked with fever, covered in sores and lesions, perhaps by this point also losing some of his sight, the emperor had to decide which of his six sons should inherit his throne. But eventually he made his decision. And it wasn't his eldest son, or even his second oldest, that he named. In fact, he selected his third son, Xuanye, a boy of only seven years old. Xuanye, the man who would soon be known as the Kangxi Emperor, 
was chosen not because of his temperament or character or even any special skills. But one thing made him stand out from his brothers and made him the obvious choice to rule China. That was that he had already contracted smallpox, suffered from it, and recovered. Xuanye had the gift of immunity, and even as a tiny seven-year-old boy, this made him emperor material. The reasoning behind this choice was obvious. Having already seen one emperor succumb to the disease, plunging the already volatile empire into chaos, the dynasty wanted to ensure it would never happen again. In fact, Xuanye would surpass everyone's expectations. The French Jesuit priest, Yakim Bouvet, who visited China at the start of the 18th century and met with the Kangxi Emperor, describes him in the following terms. Well proportioned in his limbs and pretty tall, the features of his face very exact, with a large and brisk eye. He has a little crooked nose and pitted with the smallpox, but not so as to be in the least disfigured by them. His natural genius is such as can be paralleled but by few, being endowed with a quick and piercing wit, a vast memory, and great understanding. He is one of the most accomplished monarchs that ever wore a crown. The record 61 years that the Kangxi Emperor spent on the throne saw Mongol rebels in the northwest brought back under the rule of the Qing dynasty, and he fought off the advances of the Tsars of Russia on the Amur River. But the Kangxi Emperor also fought another war, a hidden war against an invisible enemy. The enemy that had killed his father and had come close to killing him. He resolved that he would set out to solve the eternal scourge of smallpox once and for all, and free his people from its tyranny. I'm Annie Kelly, and this is Vaccine. This is the story of a campaign against disease, how it was planned and organised, and how the people responded to it. The last battle is being fought now against a terrifying disease for which there is no cure. The means of preventing it, immunization. The world and all its peoples have won freedom. A disease which causes terrible suffering and blindness and which scars for life every person who survives it. The only human disease to be eradicated globally. The greatest public health shrine in history. But let's start from the beginning. The weapon the Kangxi Emperor would use in this battle was a relatively new medical practice that drew on the ancient folk medicine of China. That weapon was called inoculation. The word inoculate comes from the Latin word oculus, meaning eye, but it actually arrived in English through the world of flowers. Gardeners would sometimes graft the bud or eye of a plant onto another plant, and the word inoculate began to be used to describe any act of transferring material from one organism 
to another. Today, the earliest written discussion of the practice of inoculation we can find is from China, in a book first published in 1549, a little over a hundred years before the reign of the Kangxi Emperor. But it's clear that throughout this period, it was a mysterious process, and those who practiced it jealously guarded its secrets. Inoculation was a process that at first glance seemed to have more in common with alchemy than medicine. The idea was simple. You take a small amount of matter from one person who had a mild case of smallpox and survived, gaining immunity in the process, and put it into another person who has never had the disease. The idea was that in this way you could induce a similarly mild case of the disease and hopefully grant them immunity too. Accounts of exactly how the smallpox matter was transmitted in this period differ, but they usually sound like pretty unpleasant experiences. In some descriptions, the scabs from a patient ill with smallpox would be ground up into a fine powder and transmitted to a bud of cotton that would be placed in the healthy patient's nose. In other cases, the powdered scabs would be blown up the recipient's nostrils through a metal tube. But, remarkably, this method actually seemed to work. In the second half of the 17th century, the Kangxi Emperor boasted that he had inoculated his whole family, his army, and other groups in society. They had all passed through a mild case of smallpox, but none of them had died, and they were all now immune. In the Emperor's Chronicles, you can almost hear the excitement that must have begun to permeate the Chinese court at the astonishing success of his experiment. The method of inoculation having been brought to light during my reign, I had it used upon you, my sons and daughters and my descendants, and you all passed through the smallpox in the happiest possible manner. But it's still clear from the Kangxi Emperor's accounts that the process of inoculation was still not a widely trusted practice, and that even at the very dawn of the idea of inoculation, it met with significant resistance from the population, as the Emperor himself recounts. In the beginning, when I had it tested on one or two people, some old women taxed me with extravagance and spoke very strongly against inoculation. The courage which I summoned up to insist on its practice has saved the lives and health of millions of men. This is an extremely important thing of which I am proud. Around this time, manuals setting out the techniques of inoculation were published in China, and by the year 1741, it's clear that the process of producing and storing the inoculation materials had become quite refined, as the following extract from an inoculation instruction manual demonstrates. Wrap the scabs carefully in paper and put them in a small container bottle. Cork it tightly so that the activity is not dissipated. The container must not be exposed to sunlight or warmed beside a fire. 
It is best to carry it for some time on the person so that the scabs dry naturally and slowly. The container should be marked clearly with the date on which the contents were taken from the patient. And news of this practice did spread outside the empire's borders. In the year 1700, nearly 40 years into the reign of the Kangxi Emperor, an Englishman named Dr. Martin Lister, a prominent London physician and fellow of the Royal Society, received a letter from a merchant working for the East India Company in China. This merchant had witnessed the practice of inoculation being rolled out on the emperor's orders and thought it might be worth the Royal Society investigating. Lister read the letter, but didn't consider such superstitious folk practices worth looking into. At the Royal Society's February meeting, another man named Dr. Clopton Habers delivered a short lecture on the curious Chinese practice. Its attendants probably listened politely, but the talk did not excite any attention among the elite of the London medical community. As the British Empire expanded through the 18th and 19th centuries, London became the global hub of an empire of plantations and trade ports that crisscrossed the globe. Englishmen were now increasingly confronted with the sight of their colonial subjects engaging in the practice of inoculation. In India in the 18th century, many English people wrote about the use of inoculation in the country. Whenever they asked about this peculiar local custom, they were told it had been used for about 150 years, although from the sources, it's clear that the method was slightly different to that of China. One East India Company official in Bengal wrote the following account of the practice. Their method of performing this operation is by taking a little of the pus, when the smallpox are come to a maturity and are of a good kind, and dipping in these the point of a pretty large needle. Therewith, make several punctures in the hollow, under the delta muscle, or sometimes in the forehead, after which they cover the part with a little paste made of boiled rice. And the practice came with a strong ritual element. After the inoculation was performed, cold water had to be poured over the patient's head until the fever came on, at which point they had to make an offering to Shatala, the goddess of smallpox. This all seemed exceedingly curious to English visitors. Through all this time, despite being fairly widespread practice in Asia and Africa, inoculation had never reached Europe. But one person would soon seek to change this state of affairs. She was an English woman, a remarkable eccentric, a traveller, a poet, and a writer. And her name was Lady Mary Montague. Born in 1689 to a wealthy family, Montague was a precocious child. She wrote letters from an early age, and recounts how in her youth, she was obsessed with the idea of chasing the sun. I had a desire of catching the setting sun, to catch hold of the great golden ball of fire sinking on the horizon, but it was impossible. 
For Lady Mary, attempting the seemingly impossible would be a running theme in her life. In the fiercely patriarchal world of the English aristocracy, she taught herself Latin, moved in illustrious social circles, and was determined to become a female writer, publishing several critical satirical poems and plays, sometimes anonymously. She was also clearly independently minded, corresponding with bishops to argue the case for female education, and rejected her father's choice of husband to instead elope with a politician that he famously disapproved of. But tragedy struck when Lady Mary's brother caught smallpox in the year 1713. Far away in China, the Kangxi Emperor was now a man of 59 years old, and had been inoculating his people for decades. At the time, Lady Mary wrote the following letter to a friend, in which she is still unable to cast off her characteristic sense of humour. Dr. Garth says tis the worst sort, and he fears he would be too full, which I should think very foreboding if I did not know all doctors, and particularly Garth, love to have their patients thought in danger. But this time, the doctors weren't exaggerating. Her brother would die of the disease, and she took her grief with her wherever she went. A year later, Lady Mary's husband was appointed the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And so she travelled with him to the city of Constantinople, which today we call Istanbul. They brought with them their infant son, and throughout the whole period of their time there, Lady Mary wrote a series of evocative letters back home, full of her wry wits and observations. Turkish ladies don't commit one sin the less for not being Christians. Tis very easy to see they have more liberty than we have. But Lady Mary would also commit to writing one of the most influential accounts of inoculation, which she witnessed on the faded, cobbled streets of Constantinople. I am going to tell you a thing that will make you wish yourself here. The smallpox, so fatal and so general amongst us, is here entirely harmless. There is a set of old women who make it their business to perform the operation every autumn in the month of September when the great heat is abated. People send to one another to know if any of their family has a mind to have the smallpox. They make parties for this purpose, and when they are met, commonly 15 or 16 together, the old woman comes with a nutshell full of the matter of the best sort of smallpox and asks what vein you please to have opened. She immediately rips open that you offer her with a large needle, which gives you no more pain than the common scratch, and puts into the vein as much matter as can lie upon the head of her needle, and after that, binds up the little wound with a hollow bit of shell. For Montague, her grief over the loss of her brother must still have been a fresh wound. So she decided to take the risk and inoculate her own three-year-old son. He survived the process and developed immunity. Astonishingly, the inoculator was so confident of the procedure that the child's immunity was put to the test by having him lie down in the bed of a smallpox patient. The family returned to London, and when a smallpox epidemic emerged there in 1721, 
Lady Mary had her second child, a daughter, inoculated too. Lady Mary Montague was a convert, and she became determined to spread the wondrous practice as far as she could, and make sure that no one should ever have to suffer the death of a loved one from smallpox again. Lady Mary knew that her position in high society, and her sparkling writing ability, made her perfectly placed to accomplish this goal. But she also knew that such a mission would not be without its opponents. Writing to her friend from Turkey, we can sense the foreboding in her tone, as she contemplates fighting to change centuries of practice by the medical establishment. I am patriot enough to take pains to bring this useful invention into fashion in England. Perhaps, if I live to return, I may, however, have courage to war with our doctors. And she was right. Many physicians and scientists in England were deeply suspicious of the practice. Part of the reason for this is that inoculation was developed in the East, in the regions of the world that were considered outside the realm of European enlightenment. An entire system of thought had been built up over the preceding centuries that justified the spread of European colonialism by arguing that vast regions like China and India were backwards or undeveloped, and that they needed the strong guiding hand of British military control to bring them into the modern era. The idea that a groundbreaking medical technology might have originated in one of these regions simply didn't fit with the worldview of the British establishment. Another factor was that many of the earliest proponents of inoculation were women. Spurred on by Lady Mary, it became a cause celebre among the fashionable women of society in Paris and London. And for the serious doctors who made up the medical establishment, this made it easy to dismiss. Inoculation was just another passing fad, they argued. One such serious doctor was William Wagstaff, a well-respected British physician. He was one of the first to condemn the growing popularity of inoculation among the upper classes. In June 1722, he wrote the following in a pamphlet entitled A Letter to a Doctor Friend, showing the danger and uncertainty of inoculating the smallpox with barely concealed contempt. Sir, though the fashion of inoculating the smallpox has so far prevailed as to be admitted into the greatest families, yet I entirely concur with you in opinion that, till we have fuller evidence of the success of it, physicians at least, who of all men ought to be guided by their judgments, chiefly by experience, should not be over-hasty in encouraging a practice which does not seem as yet sufficiently supported either by reason or by fact. Posterity, perhaps, will scarcely be brought to believe that a method practiced only by a few ignorant women and amongst an illiterate and unthinking people should, on a sudden and upon slender experience, so far obtain in one of the most learned and polite nations in the world as to be received into the royal palace. In colonial America, the same debate was raging, although the battle lines 
were drawn a little differently. And in the city of Boston, Massachusetts, one unlikely figure would become one of the most enthusiastic proponents of inoculation. His name was Cotton Mather. Mather was one of the most influential figures in colonial America. He was most notorious for his involvement in the Salem Witch Trials, where he interviewed Salem children and strongly supported the conclusion that they were under the influence of witchcraft, and was instrumental in the convictions and executions of several accused witches in the town. But Mather was a complicated character, and also pioneered certain scientific ideas, like the hybridization of plants. And at the start of the 18th century, Mather claimed to have heard about inoculation from an enslaved man who worked for him, named Onesimus, who had come from the region of what is today southern Libya. Onesimus said that he was immune to smallpox, but had never had the disease the natural way, having been inoculated back in Africa. Mather was so taken with this revelation that he wrote the following letter to the British physicians of the Royal Society in 1716. I do assure you that many months before I met with any intimations of treating the smallpox with the method of inoculation anywhere in Europe, I had from a servant of my own an account of its being practiced in Africa. Inquiring of my negro man, Onesimus, who is a pretty intelligent fellow, whether he had had the smallpox, he answered both yes and no, and then told me that he had undergone an operation which had given him something of the smallpox and would forever preserve him from it, adding that it was often used among his people. Mather took up the cause of inoculation with the same fervor as he had approached the Salem trials. He insisted that the city of Boston should adopt mass inoculation immediately to protect society from the disease. But he faced fierce opposition from many in the city. Most prominently, a man named William Douglas, the town's only European-trained physician. Smallpox had been exceptionally lethal for indigenous Americans, but it was only marginally less dangerous for the colonial settlers particularly as, generation by generation, they lost the societal immunity gained from living in large European cities where the disease was endemic. In 1721, a vessel named the HMS Seahorse arrived in Boston from the Caribbean and brought with it a smallpox pandemic that left 900 of the city's 12,000 inhabitants dead. In other areas, mortality reached as high as 30%. While the pandemic raged, Mather urged local doctors to carry out inoculation. One doctor named Sabdiel Boylston was convinced and tried out the treatment on his youngest son and two of his slaves. All recovered in a week. Over the course of the pandemic, this doctor inoculated 287 people but he faced a fierce outcry. Many people argued that inoculation was actually helping to spread the disease, and newspapers published searing condemnations of the practice. One Puritan writer, John Williams of Boston, published a pamphlet under the following title, 
several arguments proving that inoculating the smallpox is not contained in the law of physic, either natural or divine, and is therefore unlawful. In the pamphlet, he pours scorn on the newfangled practice. Inoculation is a violence unto the law of nature and the pattern that God has set us. Therefore, inoculation is unholy. Inoculation has a similitude unto and an affinity with Pharaoh's magicians, who did wonders with their rods, even to hardening of their hearts, that God might bring greater judgments upon them till he had consumed them. Williams even brought his knowledge of biblical scripture to the debate, quoting Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew 9.12. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's easy to look back at the opposition to inoculation and dismiss it as narrow-minded or counter to progress, but some opponents did make arguments based on sound reasoning. William Douglas, a rare European-trained physician in the city, actually did make a convincing case that inoculation, without mass expenditure or infrastructure, would only serve to spread the disease more rapidly. Patients who had been inoculated carried no less risk of passing the disease on to someone else. And, as we've seen, many people's living conditions in the 18th century simply did not allow for careful quarantines, or what we today call social distancing. Even physicians who broadly supported inoculation, such as Thomas Dinsdale and William Haygarth, warned strongly against what they called the promiscuous inoculation of urban populations. There is also the intriguing, if sometimes difficult to imagine fact, that people in these times simply did not think of risk in the same way that we do today, particularly when it came to things like disease and immunity. Inoculation was not a trifling procedure, and it could go wrong. The mild case of smallpox it was intended to induce could get worse, and in the worst cases, patients could even die. What's more, those who opposed inoculation seized upon these deaths and publicised them heavily as proof that they had been right all along. And by the mid-18th century, many parents were understandably afraid to let their child undergo what seemed like a newfangled, faddish and, crucially, dangerous medical procedure. Today, we are awash in statistics. They pour at us every day on social media, on the news, and as part of official communications. Every person today is fluent in their use, and they've entered our language. But at the time the early pioneers of inoculation were working, statistics were still a relatively new science. And it was incredibly difficult to actually obtain reliable data that meant you could make a convincing argument for a new treatment. One mathematician did understand the potential for these new treatments. His name was Charles-Marie de la Condamine, and he attempted to explain the statistical risk involved in inoculation using an analogy that European audiences could understand, that of lotteries and other games of chance. This is the fate of humanity. One third of all who are born are destined to die during their first two years from incurable or at least unknown distempers. 
Having escaped this first danger, dying from smallpox becomes an inevitable risk for the entire rest of one's life. It's a forced lottery in which we find that we take part despite ourselves. Each and every one has his ticket, and each year a certain numbers are drawn. Death is the lot. What does inoculation imply? The conditions of this lottery are changed, the number of unlucky tickets is reduced. One out of seven, and in more favourable climates, one out of ten, that was fatal. There remains no more than one out of three hundreds, one out of five hundreds, and soon it will not be more than one out of a thousand. All future centuries will envy us this discovery. Nature decimated us. Art takes one in a thousand. Despite La Condamine's artful reasoning, and despite inoculation becoming an increasing normality in Northern Europe in the early 1770s, it was still regarded with suspicion in many places, and in particular in his homeland of France. But the tide of public opinion would be changed from one of the most unlikely quarters, that is, from the world of high fashion. On the 26th of April, 1774, King Louis XV of France was travelling with his mistress to his opulent chateau in the grounds of the palace at Versailles, when he reported that he felt ill. He went out on the planned hunt the next day, but didn't feel well enough to ride on horseback, travelling in his carriage instead. Soon, a fever came on, and the king was brought back to the palace of Versailles for treatment. When red eruptions burst out on his skin, the disease revealed itself for what it was. From then, the king's decline was rapid. On the 7th of May, only 12 days after his first symptoms, he summoned a priest to give his confession and received the last rites. Louis died at 3.15 in the morning on the 10th of May, 1774, only two weeks after his first cough. Ten other members of his court, and servants who attended him, would die too. The palace of Versailles around this time must have felt a lot like that of the Shanxi Emperor, on the other side of the world, more than a hundred years before. The reigning king had been taken by smallpox in a thunderclap event and everyone present must have resolved that the same thing would never happen again. The new king, Louis XVI, was sufficiently frightened that he took the controversial step of submitting to inoculation on June the 18th, 1774. His two younger brothers, who were next in line for the throne, were inoculated alongside him. It's said that the king's decision to undergo inoculation was partly influenced by the enthusiasm of his queen, the famously fashionable society lady, Marie Antoinette. Marie had survived a mild case of smallpox as a child, and her mother, the Queen of Austria, was another early champion of inoculation. In much the same way that a royal wedding in the UK might be commemorated with novelty plates and mugs today, the royal inoculation was an opportunity for profit. 
the milliners of Paris invented an ingenious headdress called la pouffe à l'inoculation to be worn on top of the powdered wigs popular with the aristocracy at the time. It was an elaborate affair, depicting the serpent of Asclepius, the curling snake symbol that represents medicine, a club representing conquest of disease, a rising sun for the new king, and an olive branch to symbolize the peace resulting from the royal inoculation. It was, by all accounts, a hit with fashionable aristocrats everywhere and was worn by that champion of inoculation, Marie Antoinette. This all had the result of widely popularizing the practice of inoculation in France. It was through this mixture of persuasive strategies that inoculation, a practice fairly well known to much of the world, began to be popularized in Europe and America. For many of the early proponents of inoculation, like Lady Mary Montague and King Louis, being persuaded sometimes took a painful, personal loss. Benjamin Franklin, one of the so-called founding fathers of the United States, was one of the loudest voices against inoculation during the debate that raged through the streets of Boston during the age of Cotton Mather and William Douglas. He ran a Boston newspaper that published many articles critical of the newfangled practice. But in his autobiography, many decades later, he made the following admission. In 1736, I lost one of my sons, a fine boy of four years old, by the smallpox taken in the common way. I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of the parents who omit that operation, on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it, my example showing that the regret may be the same either way, and that, therefore, the safer should be chosen. Inoculation was growing in popularity but it was only the earliest weapon in the fight against the scourge of smallpox, the first of humanity's victories. Another battle was coming that would test everything that human beings were capable of and would decide the fate of a full third of humanity. It would ignite a fierce culture war that would make the arguments over inoculation in Boston look like a playground squabble and send a rift through the heart of society. That battle was now at hand. It would stretch around the globe, test the might of the new age of seafaring powers, and form a seemingly impossible challenge to the world's most powerful empire. You've been listening to Vaccine. I'd like to thank my voice actors, Stephen Knowles, Doug MacDonald, Peter Walters, Lachlan Lucas, Darren Oliver, Jake Barrett-Mills, Paul Cooper, Ree Brignall, and Lou Millington. This series wouldn't be possible without the hard work of our academic team. Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, Kristen Brigg-Ortiz, and Dr. Gareth Millwood at the University of Birmingham who acted as a special consultant. Vaccine is an independent show 
and we prefer not to disrupt our program with advertising and sponsorship. It can only survive with the generous support of our listeners. If you enjoyed Vaccine, please consider heading to www.patreon.com forward slash vaccine podcast to contribute something and to support the production of more quality historical programming. For now, goodbye and thanks for listening.